There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, I'm Jess Mills and welcome to Human Podcast a place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. Each week I'm in conversation with a celebrated trailblazer or unsung hero whose awe-inspiring personal story demonstrates the breathtaking things that human beings are capable of overcoming and achieving. Human has been created to make these stories more seen, more heard and more celebrated. In this first series we're exploring extraordinary personal stories of resilience and trying to understand how it enables us to overcome the most impossible experiences. Every story of greatness holds the messiness and fragility of living too, and so often our pain is our greatest teacher. So if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place, join us and let your heart be uplifted by the fire of the human spirit. Hello humans and welcome to the second episode of the Human Podcast and my god what a moment in time it is to be reminding us through this podcast every week of what we are capable of overcoming and achieving and I could not feel more lucky to be sharing the heart-bursting story of our guest this week. She is Sunday Times best-selling author, broadcaster, editor of Empire Magazine, the totally sensational Terry White. Now Terry and I recorded this conversation a few months ago just before she had her gorgeous baby boy and ahead of the release of her now best-selling memoir Coming Undone and it's a story of her memoir that she tells us today. Ten years ago Terry left London for New York for the biggest job of her career editing Time Out. To all that knew her she appeared to be living the dream, named one of Folio's top women in the US media and winning award after award for the magazine. But behind the thin veil of her professional life The legacy of her buried childhood trauma was resurrecting itself from the grave. A child had spent in extreme poverty while surviving repeated sexual and physical violence at the hands of a number of her mother's partners. The story that follows is one of both raw, visceral courage and the ultimately healing power of love. So listen in and let your heart be ignited by the fire of the human spirit. So I met Terry uh, this summer uh, at an event that we were both invited to come and talk about, you know, in, in regards to our own experiences of resilience. And um, luckily, I think for both of us, I was so fucking heavily pregnant <laughs> <laughs> that um, we weren't able to lead each other astray as otherwise quite possibly would have happened. Um, but we just had the most gorgeous time together and I heard Terry tell the most powerfully honest raw and life-affirmingly brave account of her life's story and how her experience of resilience really in its most vital form has steered its course so I feel really truly privileged Terry to have you with us here today and to be able just to be a little part of sharing this with our listeners so hello welcome. hello <laughs> and now I'm pregnant and so we still can't lead each other astray, I but know. then it is noon, so I know. <laughs> maybe that's for the best. Well, exactly. But I mean, you say you're pregnant. Can I just say Terry looks so outrageously slinky and gorgeous. I've never seen a more petite, svelte, sexy, gorgeous pregnant woman in my life, I have to, I have to say. Well, I've still got two months to go and everyone keeps warning me that it's all going to arrive it- now, but... 
touch wood apart she's, from bigger boobs yeah. which i'm quite excited by <laughs> she said she says this but she did also just tell us that she was out at a uh, fat whites gig last night straight I up was. front um for two hours so you're putting yeah. us all to shame babe but i think that is fair to say i was definitely not doing that when i was seven months pregnant um if i've ever heard a story that speaks to the power of resilience it it is yours and um i would just love for you just to to take us back to where you feel the beginning of, of, of your story began? Um, so I suppose it probably began in the womb, weirdly, um, bearing in mind what we just talked about. Um, I was born into kind of a very difficult marriage to a teenage mother. Um, my mum was 16 when she had my brother. She was 18 when she had me. Um, and the relationship between my parents broke up very young when I was two years old due to domestic violence. And we were raised by my mum pretty much from there as a single parent family. We grew up on a council estate. Things were very, very tough. Um, and it, poverty isn't a word I use lightly. Um especially when you look at where we are today and what kids mm. are going through today. But there was definitely poverty growing up and violence, both physical violence and sexual violence. Um, and so pretty much until I was, I left home at 18, that was kind of my existence. So that was kind of a long, what I always term a long period of endurance. Mm. Um, and then what came after that, my life kind of splits into two parts. Mm the early bit which was about endurance and resilience and then mm. everything afterwards can you i'd love you just to tell us if you were happy to a little bit more about what you call the the early bit so it's hard to like know, know where to start in some respects i think the things that were most challenging really um was definitely kind of um, the poverty and everything that comes out of that. Mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, there are well-known statistics which link poverty and incidences of things like domestic violence and um, sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And growing up kind of in that environment kind of made me, it does, and it's such a cliche, but it did make me the person I am in so many respects. But also... I think what I've learned as I've got older is it gives you a certain amount of trauma mm. that you then spend a lot of the rest of your life working through. I think there's a narrative which is once you escape, everything's great because you're so focused on escape. You're so focused on getting out that nobody prepares you for what happens afterwards. And mm. actually, I had quite severe mental health issues afterwards, which was a long time of me trying to come to terms with a lot of what happened, a lot of what we've been through. And actually, once you're kind of over the hill and you're in a safer space, it's only then when you get to stand still and look around mm -hmm. that you really feel the weight of what you've been through and you start to deal with the consequences of that kind of, which are emotional, are often physical, um, impacts upon your personal life, your ability to form healthy, meaningful, relationships with trust and with substance mm -hmm. um and all of those things that come after and i think you don't really talk about that a lot because there's so much emphasis on how to escape the the tumult and the chaos and the trauma and all of that but actually the after bit is the bit that i've become more interested in as i've got older so tell, tell us a little bit more about that so i think when i first left home it was just such a relief. And it was like you were, you were 18. 18. Mm. So I was the first person in my family to go to university. I went completely off my own back with no support from um, my mum. I mean, she wasn't really in, in a position to offer financial support. Um, so I worked a few jobs. I was lucky enough to get a grant, which I was the last year to be able to get a grant. I took out loans. Um, I lived on 25 quid a week, um, which was, at the time, even seemed like a lot of money. I was like, 25 quid a week, which had to cover books and bus fare and food and rent and all of that, which is why I worked extra jobs as well. Um, and so it was a massive relief. And, and in many respects, I was like, oh, I've done it now. I've achieved it. But then the kind of boundaries always keep shifting because then it was like, well, now I have to find a profession and a job which enables me to escape forever. Mm -hmm. So then I had a big fear about ending up back 
in my village by some kind of either accident or by design. So then it became about moving to London and finding a job because I knew I wanted to work in magazines. And then when you move to London, which I did when I was 21, it becomes about, oh, well, I have to keep the job and I have to be more and more successful because otherwise this life that I'm building for myself will be taken away. So those very early years were actually filled with a lot of panic in some respects, which I didn't always betray on the surface, but underneath it all, the sense of kind of the fragility of the life Mm. that I was building was really present in my mind. Mm. There's a word that you've used a couple of times which tells almost a thousand stories in itself and it's this word escape mm. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about about what that word means to you I mean for me it was all about freedom and independence to be no longer living in a climate of and an environment of fear of abuse of you know I can't I always find it difficult to explain to people what it's like to wake up as a child every day and be scared that you're going to be hit, be scared that you're not going to be able to eat and all these things which you take for granted as a human being. You take your physical safety with people you love and your ability to feed and clothe yourself. These are basic things. And when you don't have those, it means your daily existence is based on chaos and Mm -hmm. your daily existence is based on fear. And so for me, the escape, and I always had this vision in my head of London like which I'd never been to until I was 17 but I was like London is the mythical land where you run away to and you get an amazing job and a lovely big flat like on the telly and everything's happy then and and for me it was about escaping the immediate physical environment Mm -hmm. and changing as much as possible about my physical environment so that I was in control of it so that I could earn my own money to be able to feed myself clothe myself to choose the people that I loved and who I allowed into my life so that I no longer had to fear any kind of mental abuse or physical abuse and building a life for myself away from those things Mm. and um so escape was both a it was an emotional thing but it was also a very physical practical thing so it's the emotional escape but it's also the physical physical removing of yourself from the physical environment where these these terrible things were were happening and I heard you speak so powerfully about this at the event when I heard you know when, when we met and the story you told of what it takes a mother a family with her children to physically leave mm. the place where this, as you describe it, violence is, is yeah. taking place. Yeah, and that was when we were, I think I was 10, um, nine or 10, we went to a women's refuge, um, which was one of my mum's partners. Several of her partners were violent. This partner in particular was very, very violent. And he... Um, he tried to strangle my mum. He broke her nose multiple times, her fingers. You know, she was always with black eyes and broken bones. And he lived with us for quite a few years. And in the end, the only thing we could do was to run. And we went to a refuge in Wales. And I always remember both the moment my mum said, we're going, which just seemed completely nuts to me like Mm. I didn't think there was an option where you could just leave leave, go where like Mm. he controlled all her friends and the only person nearby was my nana who lived two streets away so that wasn't that safe um and it was bizarre to me that there was anywhere outside of our village where we could go Mm. and be safe and I remember when she told us thinking she doesn't mean it we're not actually gonna go and then we packed our bags a bag each we went to the bus stop. I was still thinking, we're not actually going to go. And I was also thinking, he's going to come and find us, trying to leave and, and kill us. Which is, it's interesting that that was my instinct as a child to know that we were in the most danger yeah, yeah. at that point. And actually statistics bear that out, that most women are killed when they are trying to leave or have left. Mm-hmm. And I felt that sense of danger in a very real way. We went to the Citizens Advice Bureau, which is genuinely, I think, the place where people have no hope at all. You end up, I mean, where else do you go? 
And so we went to the Citizens Advice Bureau, a very lovely woman rang around and I remember hearing her ring around and there being no space because there were three kids. Um, so they obviously had to find somewhere big enough for all of us. They kept ringing and ringing and then they found one place in Wales which had room for us, which was pretty much her last resort. I mean, we'd barely even left our village, so this, I didn't even know. It's like Wales was, again, this like strange place that I think I'd heard about on the telly, but I couldn't tell you where it was. And we got, a tra- and they paid for us to get a train. And we went and we were there um, six weeks, I think, in total. And, you know, me and my mum do have a very difficult relationship because of a lot of the things that have gone on over the years but by the same token I think the strength it must have taken her because at that point she was still in her late 20s oh my god I just you know what Terry, in I was her just, late 20s I was just thinking that you know at what and I just would love to hear from you what it felt like to observe that courage in your mother you know or, or, or was it courage that you observed you know to, to, to see your mum um taking that what must have felt like incredible whether as you, as you describe risk danger but doing it because you knew she was essentially trying to save you well, i think weirdly i don't think at the time i knew that and i had a lot of anger towards my mum growing up and right. i think i and i've actually become much more empathetic and understanding as i've become a woman myself and realized a lot of the decisions you're faced with in life i've made some terrible decisions but as a child i remember very clearly thinking it's well it's her job to protect us and she hasn't done that and i think that's what i carried with me and i think it's actually only in later years that i've thought holy shit to be in your late 20s to have three kids and to still be able to take that risk and give up and we didn't know for how long we didn't know if we'd ever be able to go back there her entire life in that one step and go away from everything she knew everybody she knew to a house that you know was a godsend and probably saved us but was full of women and children who were also broken Mm. also terrified it was a really scary place to be even though and I can't emphasize enough it definitely saved us and refuge closures are something that concern me massively because women and children who have literally nowhere else to go will will die without those safe places but you know there was we were very aware that if we could never tell anybody where we were because if men came to find any of us it puts everybody in danger there were panic buttons in the house you're you're very clear about that you're in a place Mm. where you're as safe as you can be, but you're not entirely safe. Dangerous still at the door. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I... So did you... T- after the refuge, um, where did you? Where did you, your and your family go after that? Well, so we ended up back at home. So it was, it was my mum's council house. It was right. in her name. So somehow he agreed to move out, which was great because apparently he didn't have to um, because he was in residence. Mm. So he ended up moving out and we ended up moving in. But I remember just being thinking, well, he's clearly going to come back and do something. He's clearly going to come back and kill us or set the house on fire or because why wouldn't he? Mm -hmm. Like he's going to be he was the angriest man I'd ever met. And I knew what he was capable of, which was great violence. And I didn't see any reason logically why he wouldn't just come back and because he knew where we lived, obviously. He could have had a key cut, like in as a child, especially you you lie awake at night and think about all the things that might happen. And I don't think we felt safe there for a long, a long time. And and uh, and tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, did did safety ever arrive at home? For you? Not really, no. Not while I not while I lived there. Mm. There were other partners and other incidents, though nothing as extreme as that. Um, and it was only really when I was able to build safety for myself that I found that. And that's why I think this escape and being able to be in a financial position, because I think that's another thing that people overlook, which is part of the reason my mum had to stay in some of those relationships was 
um, either she wasn't working and they were working full time or she was working part time as a barmaid or a, in a shop. And so she wasn't kind of financially able to support us on her own without massive struggle. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a financial element to all of those relationships. I mean, they were lorry drivers. It's not like it's not like they were rolling in money, but it certainly made things easier. And I think the financial constraints were very, very real. And so it's always been really important to me to earn enough of my own money that no person could ever use that as a way to trap me because yeah. I think financial coercion is a huge element, especially with working class women, yeah. in how and why they stay in those relationships. Mm. So there's 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 a few things that you said that I just would love to just just to, to talk to a little bit more. And one of them is this this very powerful sense that you clearly had even as a as a young child of um there was a sense of horizon to you beyond the experiences you were living at that time and you know this this the, the thing that london symbolized and to me that's not that is a, quite a powerful insight to very early demonstrations of resilience actually because it's it was an innate sense in you that you were able to look beyond the kind of fortress and the kind of you know those experiences which often can just leave you utterly physically and emotionally imprisoned and um it's so powerful to hear how already at that very young age you did have a sense of horizon beyond those times and um i know that um reading and books and Mm. films for you were a huge part of creating that sense of horizon and i'd love you to tell us a little bit more about that Yeah, so I think, because I've often wondered where it kind of came from, and I think it's two-pronged. One, my nana, who was my mum's mum, was amazing, and kind of, she'd been the first person who'd ever mentioned university to me. It wasn't something that was really an option until she began to talk about it. Um, And she always had, she was a proudly working-class woman, but she always had um, aspirations, and they weren't necessarily realised in her lifetime, but she had great aspirations for me. And I didn't know what that would look like, but I found I found both escape and optimism within books and films and music, actually, because I saw something outside of my own experience. Because when you're when you grow up in a small village, which I did, it was just a couple of hundred people. All you experience and all you see is the same same kind of people, the same kind of life. And I totally understand why some people think, well, this is this is my life and this is not not necessarily all I can have, but this is what my life is. Mm-hmm. People in our village, my nana always used to say, you're born here, you live here, you die here. That's kind of the motto of the village. And I understand that, but I saw these things in books and in movies, I was obsessed with American movies especially, and just, you know, adventures. I remember watching Adventures in Babysitting with Elizabeth Shue and just thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, imagine if you lived in a house like that and you wore a ca- She had this camel coat on, and I was obsessed with being able to afford a camel coat like that. And Beverly Hills 90210, I was, like, obsessed with on a Saturday afternoon because this kind of other life which looked so easy and of course it's not but it looks so easy and so pain-free and so superficial and the superficiality actually excited me because I was like not everything in life has to be so difficult and so painful and there's joy and silliness and frivolity to be had if you're in the right place with the right people thank god for jason Priestley. oh right? my god i mean <laughs> what, what what had we done what, what would what we have done and so i they became they were both an escape for me because they were worlds that i could disappear into that kind of gave me a sanctuary from my own mm. but there was definitely also i was starting to see representations of life that didn't look like mine yeah okay so i've been doing a bit of thinking um you know, largely on sort of reflection of the lot of conversations that I've been 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 having um, on resilience recently about how, you know, is resilience sometimes a can it play against us, um, and 
you know, is, you know, surviving. Resilience can't just be measured by the fact that you are physically still standing on two feet, you know, um, and resilience has to be measured and enabled in a way that enables people to thrive um, beyond trauma and, you know, life-changingly difficult and painful experiences and sometimes you know does resilience not allow for the breakdown that's needed to start again or is resilience the thing that leads us towards the breakdown so that we can almost be reborn beyond it and I would love to know your thoughts on that um particularly in relation to what I know was your experience while you were living in New York. Yeah, I, th- I think you raised a really good point because I think there are certain problematic parts of resilience which are, it becomes the thing, the standard by which you are held and which you hold yourself. Um, and it also becomes this weird badge of honour, like I can survive anything and I'm not going to show any weakness and I'm not going to show any vulnerability because... I'm going to prove that I can survive all of that. And it's exactly as you say, which is I'm still standing, so everything's okay. And then you start to accrue certain superficial things, whether it's a good job, Mm -hmm. um, professional success, and those things become markers of how it didn't break you. So it's like, it's okay, because look at what I've gone on to achieve. Therefore, I'm proving that none of that stuff actually touches you. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the thing that I struggled with for years was I was so determined not to be impacted by what happened and was so determined not to have my life shaped and defined by it that I just as soon as I left home I just buried it as much as possible and completely just thought right this is this is a new start this is a new me this is a new life everything else is behind me I'm no longer living in chaos aren't I lucky? Everything's going to be great. And then what you discover is buried trauma always kind of digs its way out of the grave at some point. That just happens. You can dig it down for as long as you want. You can bury it and it will always, always, always come back. Um, And so I kind of had mental health issues for quite some time, which I kept, I just kept secret for years because I kind of built this persona of being really tough kind of you know indefeatable and um didn't like showing softness didn't like showing vulnerability I thought both were signs of weakness and that kind of thing that I created and it was me that created that I then spent years trying to unpick because there was no room for that within that for me to be either depressed which I often was um to feel really sad about some of the stuff that happened, to even process some of the stuff that happened, um, because you're so hell-bent on on presenting this person to the world who hasn't been touched by any of it, and it becomes a performance in some respects. And the disconnect between what you're really feeling silently and without talking to anyone else about it and what you're showing to the world, that chasm becomes so great that it becomes a hole that you fall into. Mm. And to tell us a little bit more about that. Well, so it, it basically when I moved, I moved to New York, the city I'd always wanted to work in, again, blame films. <laughs> I, I mean, literally. I mean, it, and let me just say that New York, New York, living in New York for real is not like the movies. Like, <laughs> why did they not tell us this? So I moved to New York for a really big job that I loved. Um, biggest job of my career. I was 32 at the time. And it was and this kind is when you of. Were editor of Time Out. Editor, editor in chief of Time, Time Out New yeah. York. Kind of the nadir of my professional life. I was like, this is what I've been waiting for. And the thing is, when you have the kind of makeup I do, you think every next thing is going to be the thing that fixes it. Because you go, if I just get a bigger job or work in the city that I've always wanted to work with, at that point, my life is brilliant. And I really don't have anything to complain about. At that point, I'll feel complete and Mm. I'll feel properly happy. Of course, that doesn't happen. So I moved to New York. New York's an incredibly tough city. I loved, I used to go and visit every year. Living there is, it's really tough. It's really, really tough. Professionally, 
you know, the the physicality of the city I found difficult. It's so tight. It's so claustrophobic. And you can barely down on see, you. Yeah, you yeah. can barely see much of the sky. It felt like you were in a jam jar with the lid on at all points. Um, you don't really see any grass. You don't see any animals. That kind of intensity and claustrophobia of the city, which makes everything feel more intense and all everything more dialed up. It's like that 24 hours a day. Lights, blaring, noise, taxi horns, beeping. It's kind of this cacophony yeah, yeah. of sensation that mm. you, you're just not really used to. And so I loved my job. It was really difficult and really challenging. But, you know, it was such an amazing opportunity for me. But at the same time, I could feel myself starting to unravel emotionally. And the truth is that I'd never never really been able to have what I'd call a half decent personal life. I'd been so focused on putting everything into my professional life that I kind of shelved all of that. I found it difficult to trust people. I found it difficult to properly connect with people. And what that leads to is, you know, I had a couple of disastrous relationships and then was like, I'm clearly not able to have a decent relationship, so I'm just going to not do that. I'd always been unsure about having kids because I didn't want to make any of the same mistakes that had been made with me. Um, And I became convinced that the moment I got pregnant, I'd become a bad person and become a bad parent and that there was some kind of genetic code built into me that meant I wouldn't be able to parent well. And you carry all of this stuff around with you and where it leads to is your personal life isn't a priority because you don't know how to build one I'd never had a model of what a good relationship looked like what a good marriage looked like what good parenting looked like so I just kind of opted out of it all really um but in New York I was really lonely and I was drinking a lot taking a lot of prescription pills which are very easy to come across in America and as I say the kind of gap between this outward version of me we were winning awards for the magazine everybody was like I can't believe you've got this amazing job in New York and the gap between that and how I was feeling really just became insurmountable and at some point it was gonna it was gonna break yeah and it did it's, it's such a common thing isn't it when the the kind of void between the external you and the internal you becomes as you put it, so vast that you just fall into it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about about what happened then. So I so I, I was drinking increasing amounts, blacking out quite a lot, and just kind of, you know, everything was escalating, but escalating silently mm-hmm. away from everybody else. Um, and New York was becoming increasingly difficult for me. And I one night I overdosed on pills and booze. And that was kind of the breaking point. I mean, it would be, but that was kind of the breaking point, really. Um, And so at that point, I was in hospital for a little while. And then, and but then, and this isn't like the happy ending of and then everything was great because I spent the entire time going, oh, God, if work finds out, I'm going to be fired. Or if anybody finds out, they're going to wonder what's wrong with me wonder who I am and so I kind of spent as much time as possible as soon as I came out I came out and went to work the next day and just kind of got back on the horse and was like fucking hell and because I just thought I need to keep up this persona because work's the only thing I've got so if I lose that then I have nothing so I actually didn't properly engage with what was wrong with me and I was diagnosed with major depression and substance induced mood disorders um and at that point I kind of was like okay I know what's wrong with me that's fine I can deal with it um but I didn't want to take medication I didn't want to like do anything like that I didn't stay under the care of a doctor I kind of just was determined to get back to the previous normality as quickly as possible but what is that normality yeah what is that yeah because it wasn't normal yeah but it was the normal that I was used to and it felt too insurmountable to try and tackle any of that and I stayed in New York for another probably another year year I think and over a year actually and in the end when I was offered my current job I decided to come home but a big part 
in me coming home was that I knew if I stayed in New York that probably something really bad would happen and that I would, wouldn't be able to get better and that actually being at home, being near my family, I'm really close to my brother and my sister, yeah. and being around people who knew me and loved me and having that kind of safety was the most important thing at that point. And that was a huge part of the reason for coming home from New York. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Safety is, is another word which um, I've heard kind of spoken a few times as, as, you're, as you're talking and often when you look at the kind of genesis of where people's sense of resilience comes from and there's lots of different ways in which it is created or enabled or um or nurtured but this thing of safety is so profoundly profoundly deeply deeply important Mm. and it sounds to me that tell me if this is right that there's there were key people in your life even amongst you know what seems like overwhelming and at time, as you describe kind of overwhelming times that, that did make you feel safe and it's interesting that you speak about your brother and your sister almost being the kind of shepherds that safely mm-hmm. kind of guided you home from New York to England would would, would you say that that was true? yeah and I think you know deciding to I hadn't always invested in family Um, So when I first moved to London, I didn't really have a great deal of contact with anybody. I kind of cut myself off quite a lot. And actually, over the years, I came to realise how important we were to each other as siblings, um, how we'd been there for each other when we were growing up, and how actually having family was important. Mm. It doesn't mean you have to engage with everybody in your family. I don't have a relationship with either my mum or my dad. But my brother and my sister are pretty much the most important people in my life Mm. um and we have a shared history but more importantly we just really fucking love each other and that kind of unconditional pure love is is something that I couldn't really get my head around before um but it's vital because the feeling when you go through life and you meet people and you think maybe this person will love me or give me the 
validation and the safety that I need and that's not where most times you can ever find it and that's Mm -hmm. not actually where you should be looking for it and I think it often exists in your own life if you can just kind of give people the opportunity and invest in stuff because you have to work at relationships and you have to work at family and you have to do your bit um my brother has has kids and when he had his two youngest and my niece especially she who he had when I was in New York and I just felt an overwhelming love for her in a way that I hadn't Mm. necessarily for another human being before and I found that relationship transformative and I think part of it was I was in a very different place um and it kind of showed me what that that love could feel like. Yeah. Um, I think it's a huge part of the reason why I'm having a child of my own now. Um, but it kind of changed my life in many respects, our relationship and and what it kind of showed me about the love you can share with somebody in your own family. Mm. Um, and they are absolutely invaluable in my life and that, that probably is the biggest thing in my life that offers safety. Mm. After finally, after all these years, it's it's the one mainstay. It's 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 just so it's just so powerful hearing you say that because I think hearing you talk about love in 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 this framework where you were going from you know prob- possibly resilience at the expense of your happiness mm. you know resilience just by physically surviving love was the thing that enabled you to your resilience to grow in a way that enabled you to thrive yes beyond it would, yes. would you say that speaks to your experience yes completely because as you say like the pure i was so focused on just surviving mm. and everything else was expendable including love and including relationships and including a, a life that I could shape for myself outside of work that just wasn't a priority for me ever mm. and I think partly because when you're so used to surviving anything beyond that feels like a luxury mm. feels like you know it feels like too much to ask almost and too much to expect um, but also you're not built for it and I think a lot of what you have to do is is work on becoming an emotionally healthy person mm learning boundaries setting boundaries um putting yourself out there and and taking the risk because it feels like a risk when you kind of open yourself up to those kind of loving relationships um but that's taken quite a few years but it's the it's been the big trigger in terms of as you describe it from not just surviving which I was for years to actually happiness Mm. and I think I've never had a concentrated or extended period of happiness where I felt generally not you know I'm not talking about like overwhelming joy but kind of lovely constant this low hum of happiness (laughs) it's just never been something that I've experienced it's always been peaks and troughs of great misery and and bursts of joy normally associated with getting an amazing job or these kind of superficial exterior achievements that I pinned things on but probably and it was before I met my current partner and before I got pregnant there was a period where it just shift something shifted and I felt happy not all day every day but for a bit every day I felt happy and I I, feeling happy and sometimes sad became the norm not feeling sad and then sometimes happy which is a major shift for me and Terry you say um I just I just I just have to hear you talk more about this because it's just it's it's just so unbelievably moving and just the way you talk about um how loving wholeheartedly was created such a sort of profound transformation in your own sense of grounded happiness and i i think that's really interesting because i also think loving in a complete with your whole heart is also where we experience our most vulnerability Mm. 
and to love with your whole heart is actually where you know you can feel most vulnerable and I and I definitely have felt that really really profoundly through becoming a mother that you know the love you I feel for my kids um has you know and for my husband but it's it's it's, it's a different thing you have with your children is almost been the kind of ultimate experience of vulnerability mm. too and but I think in order to get yourself to that place you um I think you also you know need to reflect on 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 a strength that it it that must be there to allow you to be vulnerable like that to feel that vulnerability in the first place and and I think that is so true of you you know and I think but that's particularly powerful when we think about you know the fact that you are now pregnant yourself you know and um you know, I can't help but think about how that pregnancy and, you know, you preparing to, you know, throw your heart more widely open than it's ever been in the next few months is just testament to, um, to, to that strength too. And I know we don't always see it like that, but I see it in you. And I, is there something around having, being pregnant and you know anticipating motherhood and all that will bring and this is a whole other conversation obviously that has felt can I say healing is 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 there a process of healing that's going on because I I do I do feel that quite kind of tangibly Mm. from you there is I and I have to say I've got I have concerns about what's going to happen when the baby comes will it open up a whole new kind of raft of thoughts about my own parents. I'm sure I'm trying to kind of gird myself for that being a reality. But the very fact that I became pregnant and I knew instantly, even though I wasn't sure if I wanted kids, me and my boyfriend had talked about it. I just was so unsure. And I said to him, look, if if we're unsure, we can't go into something as life-changing as this. And then somebody stepped in and decided this was the right thing and when I discovered I was pregnant it didn't occur to me for one second not to continue with the pregnancy Mm -hmm. and I can't honestly say at any other point in my life I'd have had the same reaction Mm -hmm. and it it surprised me in many respects but I knew instantly it was because I was in a really different place than I had Mm -hmm. been even five years ago And that because I'd experienced this love with other people in my family and it had shifted me so seismically Mm. as a person that I felt able to go into that. And, And people talk about, you know, the vulnerability when you're pregnant and when you become a mother and how that kind of... You know, you you are risking so much in so many respects because you've created a person and you're responsible for that person. Um... And every fear you have, you know, is suddenly amplified and you want to be the best person and be the best version of yourself. And But I found, I have to say, I found every bit of it completely joyous. Mm. And all of the things I was worried about, all of the emotions I was worried about kind of resurfacing, all of the concerns I had about myself, none of them have have appeared. It's just, it feels like, in some ways it feels like, I deserve a chance at building a happy family of my own after after what I went through, doing it what I'd call right, um, and finding happiness in that area of my life, which I've never had before. And that feels kind of, it feels in, in many ways like this could, this is going to be a whole new chapter, which I didn't bank upon, which when I was at my most fragile and kind of my most broken never ever seemed like it was on the cards and I think it does speak to how much I've recovered so far but I also think it's going to help me on the rest of that journey as well to be honest because I think becoming a mother and having a person who you love that much I presume yeah uh, (laughs) and I already do and I've not even met him Mm. and I already feel things for him that I've never felt for anybody or anything before Mm. 
that just feels like a gift for me and a gift that I wasn't expecting and a gift that I didn't think I'd ever have. And so I feel incredibly lucky, actually. Oh, God. Oh, okay. Um, so, Terry, I saw a couple of days ago that you... And I, I read this to, to, to quite a few of my friends, actually. I just thought it was so brilliant on your Instagram where there is a ridiculously sexy picture of you six months pregnant. Um, and you post, you, you said things I've learned about my body and you list this absolutely hilariously brilliant list of stuff. But there were three points that particularly resonated um, with regards to this conversation. And there were these three and I just, I loved it, them so much. You said... Your body is stronger than you knew. It's as resilient as I hoped. It forgives everything. Lastly, it's a house of miracles. Mm. And tell us a little bit more about that, please. Well, I think it's it's astonishing what the female body is capable of, firstly. And I never knew this before. And part of when you've had the kind of background I have and you've endured that kind of trauma, you inflict some of that trauma back on your body. You just do. That's part of um, some of the consequences of trauma that, again, people don't speak about that much. So I self-harmed for quite a few years. As we talked about, I drank too much. I took pills. I pretty much did everything bad to your body you can do. And I think part of it was trying to make myself smaller and invisible another part of it was I didn't like myself very much a lot of the time and there was a punishment element of that for sure I've never cared about my body ever I've treated it with such disrespect and honestly uh, when I got pregnant and I was like I'm 40 years old is my is my body gonna let this happen like I've done so much to it over the years and I feel so lucky that it's I mean, everything so far, Touchwood, has just been amazing. And I feel stronger than I've ever felt. And that's because I'm actually... I described it to my boyfriend. I said, it, I've essentially, we've declared a ceasefire. Like, after being at war for years, <laughs> yeah. I, I've i kind of waved the white flag and said, oh, God, I'm really sorry. Please give me a chance to make this all right. And now I treat it with a love, a care and respect that I should have done years ago. And quite frankly, it shouldn't have taken me getting pregnant to actually have that relationship with my body. But I've never had that before. And I've started to realise what a, what an amazing thing it is. And it is, I mean, it's miraculous, absolutely miraculous. But I can't believe what it's forgiven. And it's given me a new respect for women's bodies generally but definitely for mine and just to see it you know even you know it getting bigger it's spreading or of all of that I haven't been anxious about weight I haven't been anxious about how it's changing I've loved every single change that's happened because I just think it's you know it used to be something that I hid within mm -hmm. and now it's something that is shifting right under me because it's doing something incredible and I feel proud of my body in a way that I never have before. Not because I think it looks amazing, but because I think it does. it's doing. Well, <laughs> but it's, it helps that it does. <laughs> it's, it's doing something amazing. It's, it it's doing something extraordinary. Every single mm. day, it's performing miracles. And yeah, it's... And that's been one of the biggest revelations of pregnancy for me. And again, that's why in many respects this pregnancy has been such a life-changing event for me because it goes beyond just you know having a baby which is in and of itself a massive thing it's, it's kind of a complete reconfiguration of how yes. you experience yourself yes yeah. and and what I'm capable of and you know not I I'm proud of myself in ways that I wasn't before mm -hmm. and I want to care for myself and look after myself in a way that I haven't before. And that's not just because... So I've just had to say, Terry, I fucking love you so much. <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> but I'm just like, I just fucking love you. But that I isn't just... even just about a responsibility. I've got responsibility for another human, but it's not that. I've got a responsibility for myself. Yeah. And after the baby comes, it'll continue because it's that, that mm -hmm. shift in me is a permanent shift. Wow. I mean, I just wish we had 17 hours just to sit here and carry on talking. But um, I just 
um as we move to the end of the interview there was just um a couple of more questions I wanted to ask you if that's okay so um the first one was just that you know knowing what you know now if you could go back and give yourself some loving guidance at any point in your life when would that be and and what would you say I think probably early 20s Terry who was so determined to set fire to her past and erase it and rebirth herself in in London that I kind of did a lot of damage in those early years Mm -hmm. after the initial escape um and I just you know tell her that it doesn't have to be that way it doesn't you don't have to raise your past to the ground to be able to build a present and actually that that disconnection that I did would take years to get over what do you think 20 year old Terry would think of 40 year old Terry (laughs) she'd think I'm dead soft she'd be like (laughs) hang on you drink water you're having a baby you've got a boyfriend you're talking about feelings you're dead to me you're saying the word love what's happened to you (laughs) oh dear um okay oh reluctantly last but hopefully not least if there was one person in the world that you would want to be proud of you, who would that be? Uh, my nana, definitely. So she died when I was in my 20s. Um, and I kind of achieved stuff in my career, but I know she always wanted me to have a happy life as well. And I've thought about her a lot since I got pregnant. And she's the one person who I'm devastated she's not here to meet my son um and I was convinced when I first got pregnant that it was a girl and I think part of that right up until the 20 week scan I was saying to my boyfriend it's not a boy so I'm not even going to discuss names and he's like I just don't think you should put all your eggs in one basket and I was like well I I'm a woman the I baby's know my inside body. me yeah. I know my body and then the sonographer was like it's a boy <laughs> Fuck. but I was going to call her Maggie after my oh Nana, and I actually think part of my conviction that it was a girl was I was desperate to carry on my grandmother in some way. Um, And I thought this was a way to be able to do that. Um, But actually, just teaching my son everything she taught me, being the kind of role model she was for me, inspiring him in the way that she inspired me, that's going to be her greatest legacy. Um, Terry, I think you are her greatest legacy, I have to say. Thank you. Nothing more than that. (laughs) You're fucking amazing. And this has been one of my most favourite hours I've spent in a really, really long time. Thank you so, so, so much. Um, So I just wanted, um, just to finish up, um, if there was a song, if it's possible to do this, to dedicate to your story, story, what would that be? And tell us a little bit why. So I was going to choose Misshapes by Pulp because when I was 17, I got the album on CD for Christmas, um, Different Class, and I remember listening to it and and that gave me such a view of it's okay not to like where you are and there are different people. Um, and even if you feel like the odd one out, you're not on your own. Thank God for Jarvis Cocker. Yeah. But actually, I'm going to choose something a bit less cool, which is Stand By Me by Oasis. Oh. And because this, <laughs> I love Oasis, like with a passion. <laughs> but this song for me has got, I loved it when I was a teenager. But actually, it's only struck me over the years how optimistic it is. Mm. And, you know, the thing about you never know how it's going to be. And I wish kind of I wish teenage me would listen to it a bit more closely and realize that things can turn out all right in the end. And you're not kind of um, predisposed to this life of misery and sadness that actually it could all turn out really well if you just kind of hang on in there and have a bit of faith. Oh, Terry White, we love you. We adore you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.
thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to rate, review and subscribe to us on your podcast app, then please do. And you know the score, five stars, please. If you'd like to come and say hello on Instagram, then you can find me and all things human podcast related at This Is Jess Mills. This podcast was created and hosted by me, Jess Mills, with creative co-production by Bonnie Tyburn and produced by Joel Porter at dot dot dot. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.